0: You're listening to audio from the Village Church. This teaching is designed to be listened to after having completed the lesson in the workbook. It is not intended to stand alone. You can download the workbook at tvcresources.net. Okay, so last week we had our introduction to the study. We kind of brought ourselves up to where we are and sort of in the middle of the story. Uh, When we went home for the holidays, we left Saul having fallen on his own sword on top of a mountain, and that was kind of a bummer. And then this week, things didn't get just a whole lot happier, did they? Uh, although there are some signs of hope, and so we want to make sure that we're paying attention to those. But in the book of Samuel, you basically cover the lives of, of three men as the as the central figures. And so there's the story of Samuel, which has already concluded, and then there's the story of. Saul, which has already concluded. And so now we are left with this one central figure, David, uh, who will take us through the rest of Second Samuel. But it's important for us to keep reminding ourselves that this is not a book about David. This is not a book that is primarily about us understanding him. It is a book that is about a covenant God who covenants to preserve his covenant people. That is the main point of the book, and so as you're digging into stories of battles and people are chasing each other and stabbing each other, just remember to ask, what am I seeing here? That's true about God, and I actually had a conversation with someone out in the foyer before we came in here, and she said, my group was not happy about trying to answer the attributes of God question this week, <laughs> uh, because it just was like, all these people died, and they were, I don't know, what was I supposed to do with that? And so we will get to spend a little bit of time reflecting on what should we take from a text like this? What should we we understand to be true of God when you're in stories like these. And as is the nature of doing a line by line study, we don't always get to have nice, neat cutoff points in the story to where we feel a lot of plot resolution at the end of any given particular week of homework. How was the homework this week? Pretty manageable? Good. I hope you did take time to put in order those events that were in that first question because it does help us to get our bearings for where we are now. So now we're going to pick up in verse one of chapter one with an opening phrase that says, After the death of Saul. And that's a good phrase for us to pay attention to because that, everything that we will see for the rest of the book, is. After the death of Saul, so Saul's reign has concluded, and now we get to see what happens next. And of course, we have a lot of lingering questions, or at least I hope you will let yourself feel the lingering questions that you should have, because I know some of you are already thinking ahead and thinking, but I I know how the story ends, and that's fine, but try to back out of it and pretend that you are sitting listening to this story being told to you, uh, perhaps during a time when you didn't have a copy of the text. Because there weren't that many copies of the text. And then ask yourself, what tensions would I be feeling if that was the situation? So after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. Okay, so the Amalekites, you will remember, and you had a chance to sort of refresh your memory in the homework this week. They were who Saul should have wiped out and didn't. You remember Samuel saying, what is that bleeding of sheep in my ears? Because he just decided maybe he would keep some of the things that God had told him to completely destroy. And so the Amalekites have continued to be a source of trouble for the people of Israel. And in fact, an Amalekite is going to figure largely into the story today. So we should be asking some questions. Is there irony here? Is there some reason that the Amalekite is the one who brings word? And we're going to look at that as we go through the story. So it says, David remained two days in Ziklag. And you will remember that Ziklag is the town that was given to him by Achish, the Philistine commander who he was serving under during the time that he was in exile. Uh, because Saul was pursuing him. So Ziklag is this place of ambivalence. We saw that last semester. It is a place where you're like, well, should he be there? Is he operating according to the will of the Lord? Is he supposed to be among the Philistines? I mean, you, remember, you may remember he lied. He, he, he deceived uh, Achish that he was actually serving him faithfully, and he almost found himself in a terrible situation where he would have been killing his own countrymen but the Lord extracted him from that. So the very first place he is located is in Ziklag, but where are we gonna see him move to? Hebron, right? And you got to see the significance of that, that Hebron is actually a very significant place in the history of Israel. It is the place where Abraham lived. It is a place where the patriarchs are buried, and there are other reasons that it is a good location that we will talk about in just a few minutes. And did you use your map this week? Mm-hmm. I love it. And we're going to talk about the map some today. But if you paid attention to where Ziklag is and where Hebron is on your map, you saw, I'm sure you can all see this, right? Uh, that Ziklag was on the other side of that dotted line that delineates the Philistine territory. So a move to Hebron is a move back to the people of God. Significant imagery there and significant message. Okay, so it's also important for us to know that it is a trip of about 80 miles for the Amalekite who's going to show up. And we would assume that he came on foot, so it would have taken him several days to get there. Very interesting. So this is verse 2. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now, when you read that description, you may have initially thought, well, he's had a long journey, so he doesn't look so great. But what is clothes torn and dirt on head a sign of? mourning. He wants to show up with visible evidence of mourning. Now, the hard thing is going to be that this guy is going to tell a story about what happened at the death of Saul. And did anyone have a little bit of time where you were like, so who's telling the truth here? Because didn't we just read a different version of this at the end of 1 Samuel? Like, did you feel a moment of, oh, well, maybe this is what happened. And maybe I'm just not following along very well, and I'm missing something. So here is a, I love this week's lesson because it's an opportunity for us to look at some principles of interpretation that you can use across the Bible. And really, I would say with any book, Um, you can trust the narrator. Anytime the narrator's voice is telling you what happened, you should value the voice of the narrator over the voice of a character, and particularly in this case, an Amalekite, because the Amalekites have already been established for us as the enemies of the people of God. And so when you hit that confusion point, what you can train yourself to do is to say, hang on, hang on, what did the narrator say happened? Because if you have a lying narrator, you wouldn't read the book, right? Because how can you even know what the point of the story is if the narrator is telling you one thing and then another thing turns out to be true? So a general principle of interpretation is trust the voice of the narrator. So what we should have gotten when we hear this man's story is, aha, that's actually not what happened so let's see what happens he shows up with his clothes torn and dirt on his head it says at the end of verse 2 and when he came to david he fell on the ground and paid homage <clears throat> david said to him where do you come from and he said to him i have escaped from the camp of israel and david said to him how did it go tell me and he answered the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead and saul and his son jonathan are also dead then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? Now, listen, you and I already read the last chapter. We know what happened. David does not have the internet. There's no phone he can pick up and call someone. There's no evening news reporting what happened. This is the first report that he receives. And so it's, you don't even want to read that sentence as, Oh, well, how do you know? What, how, what do you think was the emotion behind those words? Because what are we going to see come up in just a few minutes? We're going to see this lament. This would have thrown David into complete turmoil. How do you know? How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And again, there's no TV he can turn on, so there has to be some physical evidence that his words are true. This is why people cut each other's heads off and carried them around and showed them to everyone. Because you wanted physical proof that what the person was saying had actually happened. Verse six, and the young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. Now you and I might miss the significance of the chariots and the horsemen, but the chariots were typically what carried the archers. And so that would mean death was imminent. He says, they were close upon him, verse seven, and when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered him, here am I. And he said to me, "'Who are you?' And I answered him, "'I am an Amalekite.' And he said to me, "'Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers.' So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord.'" So what is this guy saying? He's like, oh, I just happened to find him, which really is highly unlikely because even in the final moments of Saul's life, he had his armor bearer with him. He was the king. He would have been surrounded by people even if his downfall was imminent. He wouldn't have just been by himself on a hill. And then notice what he says. He says, I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm and I have brought them here to my Lord. So he certainly did find Saul, and then what did he do? He stripped him of his signs of royalty, and he carried them here for evidence. And there's this contrast that is being put here for us between the scene in 1 Samuel 18.4 where Jonathan, Saul's son, willingly gives the signs of his royal status to David, and Saul, who the signs of his royal status are carried by violence and treachery and laid at the feet of David. So at this point, David does not seem to suspect. He may be beginning to build suspicions about the man's story, but he does not go into an inquisition. Like, wouldn't you expect that the next thing he would do is follow up with more questions? But instead, he cannot pause to do that because the most important thing that can happen next in David's mind is that he grieve. Now, you might ask, what is the motive of the Amalekite, right? Like, what does he stand? Why would he even come and bring this story? Because you already know he's going to die. So you're like, well, that guy's a big dummy. He shouldn't have said that. But what is his assumption? David has been hunted for most of his adult life by Saul. Surely if I am the one by whom death came, there will be reward in it for me. So he is hoping to gain favor by being the instrument. But you notice what he's done here. It's not like he went up and saw Saul and that's your enemy. So I'm just going to, no, what does he say? He's like, Hey, I just, I was helping him at his request. David's immediate response is Grief. His grief cannot wait. Verse 11 Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. So the evidence speaks truth to David, and he knows whether this man's story is true or not that Saul and Jonathan are dead. And he is grieved. And we look at this and we want to say, but is he like, why? Like, I get that he's sad about Jonathan, but the part about Saul must just be a put-on, right? Like, it's just so he can, you know, because we're going to see him begin to make a bunch of political um, alliances over the next several chapters. So maybe that's all this is here too. What do you think? Do you think that is a valid critique of him? I think that David understood and you saw him again and again. He had two opportunities to take the life of Saul. And what did he say? I will not touch the Lord's anointed. What is that? You're like, oh, but David, you're the Lord's anointed. But what did he understand? In the Lord's timing, I will take the throne that has been given to me, but I will not be the instrument by which the Lord's anointed king is taken down. So verse 13, and David said to the young man who told him, where do you, and David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and an Amalekite. So this is a significant thing that the man says, because what is he indicating? He's not just some random Amalekite who happened to be on the battlefield. He is a sojourner. That means that he had been dwelling among the people of Israel as part of the camp. And so why does David, what does David learn from this? He learns that this is a person who has enough context that he should know that Saul was not to be touched. He should know that Saul was not to be touched. Verse 14, David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed?" How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Well, now this guy's in trouble because either he admits that he lied or he just goes with the story, but either way, there's no way out for him. Isn't this fascinating? Because what happens next? Verse 15, then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. But he didn't. So what are we supposed to take from this? Well, what was the theme of last semester? It was that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And this man dies for his false words, but also for the intent of his heart. If he had come upon Saul before Saul had fallen, can there be any doubt that he would have worked wickedness to his advantage? He didn't murder Saul. But he had all of the motive to do so. And because God looks on the heart, justice is served anyway. How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? That's a word that could have been spoken to Pilate. That's a word that could have been spoken to the Sanhedrin. That's a word that could have been spoken to Judas. Do you not have a holy fear of the one who the Lord has anointed? Do you know what the word for anointed is? Messiah. Would you put your hand out to destroy the Lord's Messiah? The answer is that many have. What about us? As those who call upon the name of the Lord, how do our daily choices effectively be a shaking of the fist at the one who is our very deliverer? Psalm 111.10, I always say I'm cautious about people having life verses because we tend to choose wonky ones. But if I were going to pick one, it would be Psalm 111.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do we have enough right reverence for the Lord's chosen one that we choose not to sin, understanding that any sin is rebellion against God's anointed? The Amalekite illustrates for us how the Lord feels about his anointed being dealt with wrongly. So, The Amalekite falls, and then David resumes his grief. Look at verse 17. It says, And David lamented with with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. And then we get this lament, but before we get into it, I want us to take a look at what we are about to see. So first of all, he says he lamented with this lamentation, and then what we're going to see is actually a highly organized piece of writing. Um, And so if you think about the difference between, um, if anyone has ever gone through a period of grief, there were probably many ways that that grief expressed itself. Some of them were just groans. Some of them were crying out to the Lord. And those are valid expressions of grief, to be sure. But what we're going to see here is a organized, thoughtful meditation on grief. So the best way I can think to give you uh, the difference here would be, um, does anybody remember studying sonnets in high school? So it's a 14-line poem. It's highly organized, a highly defined rhyme scheme, and they almost always deal with the subject of love. So when you are in love with someone, you're doing this all the time, right? So it might be in the early stages of your love, all you can think to say is, I just love you, I just love you, I love you, I love you, I love you so much, I love you. And those are words that mean a lot. But why is it that people show up on Valentine's Day with a highly organized expression of their love in the form of a poem or a sonnet? What does that show about the emotion that you're feeling? It is moving from chaos to order. It is a meditation. It is not the word of the moment. It is words that come out after a great deal of thought and choice. And that's why it's so precious to us when someone takes the time to write us a note where we can tell they've enumerated the reasons that they care about us. And in the case of a sonnet where they've even made them rhyme in an an intricate rhyme scheme, It shows intention, it shows meditation, and that's what we're going to see when you hear psalms of lament. That is what is being talked about. It is when grief begins to move from chaos to order and finds voice in a way that is methodical and meditated upon. Now it says that this is written in the book of Jasher, which I know you all love to read on holidays and weekends what in the world? So this shows up in the book of Joshua, too. There's mention of this book. We don't actually know what this book was. I mean, we speculate that it was a book of poetry or war songs, sort of a collection of them. And people get really wigged out that they don't know where this book is anymore, because it's like, well, if it's in there, is there more important stuff in there that we need? Like, why isn't the book of Jasher in the Bible? We can exhale on this. We don't need the book of Jasher, or it would be here. We have the parts that we need in here. So this, I would say, think of this in similarly to when a, a place is mentioned in the Bible that we no longer know where it's located. And so why are those things in the Bible, if you and I can't turn to our map in the back of our workbook and find that place, well, why is it in there? Because for the original audience, it was a marker that what is being said here can be validated somewhere else. Like the original audience would have been like, oh, Havilah, I know where that is. And you and I are like, huh? But it's important for us to know that the author's intent was to root what was going on in a greater context. So the book of Jasher is lost to us, but these words are not. And now I want you to notice the highly ordered uh, nature of this particular outpouring. Of grief. And so what we will see is we will see a um, if you've, you've heard me talk about chiastic structures before, a chiasm. It's a form of parallelism that you find throughout the Bible and you're going to find it here as well. And what it does is it has its own rules. And its rules are it starts with parallel ideas at the beginning and the end. And then if you follow it, it's doing this. Parallel ideas all the way to the center. And the center is where you usually want to pay attention because that's where the stress is laid. And in the case of this lament lamentation, we have a chiasm that extends through the first part of the lamentation all the way through verse 25. And then we have a little piece at the end, 26 and 27, where the focus shifts from being on Saul and Jonathan to just being on Jonathan. So I want to help you kind of pick this out. And the way that you can find these is you look for those repeated ideas. And so the first repeated idea that probably jumped out to you might not be the one that is first in The text, how the mighty have fallen. Like we asked you to look for the repetitions of that and how many times was it said. And the interesting thing about that phrase is we use that in a derogatory way, don't we? When someone who is kind of too big for their britches does something and then suffers a loss, we're like, oh, how the mighty have fallen. (laughs) And it's a great phrase unless you're the one who actually screwed up. But how is it used in its original sense? It is a genuine expression of loss and wastefulness. Like I think if we were looking for a theme for this week, you could find this theme of just wastefulness, these lives that could have been so much more and ended up just being spilled blood on the high places. So anytime you see a repeated idea, for me, when I first started realizing what was going on in this passage as I was studying it, it was the daughters piece that jumped out at me. I was like, oh, we talked about daughters of the Philistines here, and then down here we talked about daughters of Israel And then I began looking a little closer and I realized that the chiastic structure had already actually begun at the beginning of verse 19. So take a look and let's see if we can pull it apart. It says in verse 19, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your what? High places. Now, duck your eyes down to the end of verse 25. It says, Jonathan lies slain on your high places, and so if you're a person who marks in the text, I hope we all are, you can put a number one and high places next to each of those mentions. Now look back at verse 19. What's the second half? How the mighty have fallen. So now look at verse 25 again. Back yourself up. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. So you can put number two, mighty fallen. Now look at the next verse, verse 20. It says, Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. You can look down then at verse 24. Do you see how we're backing our way up? You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. So we have a comparison of daughters. So in verse 20, you can put number three, daughters. You can put daughters of the Philistines if you want. And then by verse 24, you can put number three, daughters of Israel. And what's the next idea that we encounter? In verse 21, it says, You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. So this one's a little trickier to see, but you've got mountains and fields. And here's the thing. Once you've identified there is a pattern, it gets easier to look for how the pattern might be continued. So in verse 21, we have mountains and fields. And then pop your eyes down to verse 23 says, so Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Do you hear those two, two pairs from the natural world? So you've got mountains and fields as an example, and then eagles and lions. So you can put number four and put... You can write that however you want. I just put mountains and fields up at the top and then eagles and lions down in the next mention. And then... Toward the end of verse 21, it says, For for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty. The bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. So what do we see right here in the middle? We see weapons. You've got shield up above, and then you've got bow and sword down below. So you can put number five, weapons, next to the second half of 21. 21 and the second half of verse 22. Well, all of verse 22, actually. So what do we find right there kind of in the middle of all of this? We find this sort of devastating statement. Well, not sort of. It is absolutely devastating. It says, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. Did that jump out at you when you were reading this? So isn't it fascinating to see? This is not just a little bit ordered. It is extremely ordered. Every phrase has been thought about. Every word has been chosen. Shield, that word for shield. So basically back in this time, a shield would have been made out of, do you know what they were made out of? Leather that was put over wood. And so a leather shield had to be kept supple by being anointed with oil. You had to rub it with oil so that it would not dry and crack and lose its strength. But there's a little word play going on here because the word that's used for shield is often also used for sovereign or ruler. And so we're seeing a double idea given to us. The sovereign Saul, not anointed with oil. David is acknowledging that the anointing of Saul has been removed. Verse 23, before we move on to the next portion, I just want to point out this nice phrase here. It says, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were not divided. We touched on this a little bit last semester, but why were they not divided? Was it because Saul didn't want to divide from Jonathan? No, it was because Jonathan was steadfast to stay by his father even to the end, even though Jonathan knew that David was the rightful king. So if you were looking for an adjective to describe Jonathan, one attribute that comes to mind every time you think of the name of Jonathan, what would it be? Faithful. That's right. Faithful. Now hang on to that because you're going to need that when we get to the next part of the poem. Jonathan, unlike the Amalekite, was faithful to the Lord's anointed. Now we're going to shift the focus and David is going to mourn for his friend Jonathan in the remaining verses of the lament. Verse 26 says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. So you have that last verse, verse 27, that sort of punctuates by reiterating the idea that opened and closed that earlier chiastic structure. And then we have this statement of David's deep love for his friend Jonathan. And the affection that Jonathan and David shared has often been called into question by people reading the scriptures to say, what was really going on there? Like, what does he mean when he says surpassing the love of women? What's going on that makes me uncomfortable? What did we say was the overarching characteristic associated with Jonathan? Faithfulness. And that is what is in view in this passage. His faithfulness, expressing itself in love, was extraordinary to David. David has not known a lot of faithfulness yet in his story. That faithfulness surpasses any that he has known from a woman. Now, when you think about the way that marriages were formed, and indeed we are going to see David form a number of marriages. We are going to see David's attitude toward faithfulness in marriage. So what is expressed here is that the depth of relationship he has enjoyed with Jonathan holds more integrity, more safety than any other relationship he has known. I said this last semester, I wanna reiterate it again. We are dwelling in times where our society is losing its definition for friendship. We believe that any intense emotion must be romantic, but what we see expressed here is that there is such a thing as a deep and abiding emotion of friendship and it's a beautiful thing to preserve. And if the people of God cannot demonstrate deep and abiding friendship with one another. Where else will the world learn it? A world that is saying, you know what, that must be romance because the only intense emotion that we acknowledge is romantic love. Look at the movies that we make. How many of the movies that are out there, particularly with Valentine's Day coming up, how many of them are about deep and abiding friendship? And how many of them are about romance? We love romance. We think it is the highest form of love. But we're seeing a different position presented here. So before we move on to chapter 2 and see what happens next, I do just want to show you kind of a really great um, parallel structure that exists in the story of the Amalekite and Saul. This is coming from Tim Chester's excellent commentary uh, on the book of 2 Samuel. And he says this. He says, Saul lost his kingdom because he plundered the Amalekites against God's strict orders. So that was last semester. Now an Amalekite has plundered him. Saul claimed to have wiped out the Amalekites, but he did not. That was 1 Samuel 15. Now an Amalekite claims to have wiped out Saul, but he did not. More significant are the opening words of 2 Samuel. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. Saul died because he failed to strike down the Amalekites. And so the Christ of Israel, her anointed king, is dead. Immediately, David returns to center stage. And what has he been doing? Striking down Amalekites. The message is clear. He is the Christ that Saul was not. I read things like that, and I'm like, man, I do not know what I'm doing. Did this guy just like open up the text and be like, oh, yeah, that's really clear. But this is why we keep pressing forward. (laughs) We might get a little better at it as the time passes. So let's look on now at chapter 2. It says, After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. Now don't miss the beauty of these particular phrases here. Because the last time we saw Saul, what was he trying to do? Inquire of the Lord by any means possible. And did the Lord answer him? No. And yet here we see David inquire of Saul. Oh, David inquire of the Lord. Nope. No more dead people coming back. David inquire of the Lord, and the Lord responds immediately. Now, you may remember David still has a priest, and so we would assume that the priest is helping with the inquiry process, but it does not describe how he inquires this time. But the Lord says that he should go up. And David said, to which shall I go? And he said, to Hebron. Hebron, which is the city of Abraham. Hebron, which is the city given to Caleb when the land allotments are given out. Not only that, but Hebron is the highest elevation of any town in Judah. So it is strategically important. But it is also symbolically important because it marks a return of David into the full fellowship of the children of God. Verse two, so David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoaman of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah, I'm sorry, I said town, Hebron is actually an area. It says, and the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Okay, so what's happening here? David has now been anointed over the house of Judah, but you're like, well, he was already anointed. Why are we doing that again? What's going on here? Well, remember when he was anointed back in 1 Samuel 16, it was just him and Samuel. It was done in private. And so now this is a big, significant move forward in demonstrating that God is faithful to his word. Why? Because there is a visible ruling king. He's been anointed over the house of Judah, but that's only one tribe. Seems kind of like a downer after all that buildup. And it's not even a big tribe, it's a small tribe. But what can we know? What is the text signaling us there? Because we can look back on this with our New Testament eyes, and what do we know that Jesus says? You know how the kingdom of heaven begins? It's like a mustard seed. There was another visible ruling king, who did not appear to have much of a kingdom or a following, but in fact ruled all things. David now prefigures that for us. So he's ruling over the house of Judah. So it's a start, but let's see what happens next. It says, When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So is a couple of things I want you to recognize here. So we remember these guys from last semester. They are the ones who go and retrieve Saul's body so that it will not suffer any further humiliation. And why did they do that? Because you may remember Saul delivered them out of the hands of Nahash the snake who wanted to gouge out one of each of their eyes so that they could no longer go into battle and fight. So they were honoring a debt to Saul. And what does David show them in the message that he sends? If you honor Saul, I honor you. Do you hear his consistency of his approach? And why was this an important message for the men of Jabesh Gilead? So first of all, there is a political element to this. It doesn't mean that it's wrongly motivated. What does David want to do? He wants to be king over Israel as he has been anointed to be. And at this point, in order to do that, he has to display trust and favor to those who will need to come underneath his rule. And Jabesh Gilead, did you look at it on your map and all of this? So Jabesh Gilead, you can find it, it's um, right next to the word Jordan. On the river Jordan, it's to the right. And so where is it located? You'll look down and you can see we have a little dotted line that sort of transects Um, the, the land right there. That divides what will become the northern kingdom from the southern kingdom eventually. And at this point, it is a rough dividing line for you to see where all of the activity is taking place in terms of who is ruling over Israel and who is ruling over Judah. And where is Jabesh Gilead? It's in Israel. And not only that, but it's pretty squarely north in Israel. And so when he sends word to them, these are people who are facing a decision because they're in the midst of what we're going to see is um, an oppositional force, uh, and and they're going to have to decide where their alliances lie. And we don't actually hear at this point what they choose. So then in verse 8, we start to see how things are shaping up from an alliance-building standpoint. It says, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ish-bosheth, which his name means man of shame, took Ish I mean great, who was your mother? Doesn't sound like a nice person. <laughs> Abner the son of Nair, commander of Saul's army, took Ish the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. Now is that a name that's familiar to you? Mahanaim, that is where we saw Jacob put his head on a stone for a pillow and have a dream about angels ascending and descending. It's not really relevant to this particular story, but it is good, I think, to make as many location connections as we can as we're moving through the the text. So it says, He brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David, and the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months." So this can be a little bit confusing to untangle. So first of all, if we're going to say that he was king over all Israel, if we're going to say that about Ish-bosheth, why would we not just say he's king over all Israel? Why does it list off he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin? Why do you think that is? Because it probably is reflecting that it took some time for him to take all of those territories in, that he didn't just name him that and it happened, but that eventually he became king over all of those areas. Now, this is interesting because Abner, you know, like you get into this next story and you're like, I don't, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Like, what do we make of Abner? But bear in mind that Abner knows that David is the appointed king. Saul acknowledged it during his lifetime. And so Abner, his general, would know that. And so when Abner goes to set Ish-bosheth up as king, he is doing so in direct opposition to the revealed will of the God of Israel. So keeping that in view can help us to understand how his character is developed in the story. But we see that David reigned for seven years and six months, and ish reigned for two And if we're going to see those two storylines coming together in what we're going to see in the Battle of Gibeon, then we would understand that David reigned for a significant amount of time, about five, four and a half years, before Ishbosheth became king of Israel. So up until that point, we can assume that things would have continued as they had been with each tribe sort of being ruled by whoever their, their particular ruler was. Okay, clear as mud. So verse 12, says, Abner, son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. Now, if you were looking at your map and you saw Gibeah on there, that is your close call with Gibeah. And there's a lot of like use of multiple names for the same place just to make things easier for us. So turn to your map right now and just take a look at that. You'll find Gibeah sort of in the, it's right to the northwest of Jerusalem, Do you see it? Like there's a little notch in the dotted line where it kind of ducks up a little bit and you'll see Gibeah is right there. And then where is Mahanaim? Well they're not exactly sure of its location, but if you look up where Jabesh Gilead is, it's down and to the right. And so when he moves from Mahanaim to Gibeah, what is he doing? Is he on the defense or the offense? He's on the offense. He's moving into their territory. He's positioning himself to make a strike. And verse 13 says, And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. So that's a defensive move. It says, And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, Twelve for Benjamin and Ishba the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which means the field of sword edges. That sounds like a nice place for a picnic, uh, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants. Of David, so okay, what was happening here? Well, we're see, we're probably seeing a contest um, similar to what we saw with David and Goliath. So it's a representative battle, and this was sometimes done to prevent widespread bloodshed. But as we saw in the case of David and Goliath, and we also will see here, that actually doesn't happen. It still ends up devolving into full-scale war. But 12 of their men battle 12 of the other men, and then in some bizarre situation, everybody sort of stabs each other and falls down all at once. Verse 18, we get a little zooming in on some of the action that follows. It says, and the three sons of Zariah were there Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. And you really have to say that name carefully. Now, Asahel was a Swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. I can tell I've lost you, I can hear you laughing. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, "'Turn aside from following me. "'Why should I strike you to the ground? "'How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab?' But he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back, and he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. Why do you think that we bother to say that at the end? Why? Why? Did, why? That, why not just end? the battle? Just kept raging, because what are we beginning to see um, brought to focus here again? Wastefulness, just the wastefulness of all of this. And so Abner is being pursued by the gazelle, and, and he's persistent, right? Like, he, he, he is persistent on chasing him down. And when you're reading this the first time, you're like, who am I rooting for? <laughs> but what is he doing? He is fighting because he believes that David is the rightful king. So that's going to shape the way that we understand the story. And so his falling is a deep loss. And Abishai, so you had Joab and Abishai here mentioned before him. Abishai, you may remember from 1 Samuel, he was the one who, um, when there was a chance to strike, down da- to strike down Saul, he told David, you should do it. You should take him out. So that's where we get into a little bit of a, but is who is the good guy, right? Because what we're seeing here is an eagerness to install David as king, but perhaps on a timeline that is not the Lord's. So these are very conflicted scenes for us. Verse 24 says, But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, "As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning." So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel, no more, nor did they fight anymore. So what just happened? Abner gets backed into a corner, and he decides that he would prefer a truce to defeat. And how does he make his argument to Joab? We are your brothers. And then the wastefulness becomes even more apparent. It is a civil war. It is the children of God striving to kill the children of God as if they don't have enough enemies already. Verse 29. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan and marched in the whole morning. They came to Mahanaim, so they returned home. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. So we have Abner returned to his place, And we have Joab returned to his place. And when the losses are counted, we have Judah has lost 20 and Benjamin has lost 360. Not enormous numbers of loss, but a hint of what is to come further on just the discrepancy in loss there. And the thing that I found particularly sort of striking about this is that when you go back and remember the story of the namesake for each of these tribes, you actually see an opposite relationship. You remember Judah back in Genesis? He's the one who thought it was a great idea to sell Joseph into slavery and then later, he's the one who, when his brother Benjamin needs to remain in Egypt, says, no, 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 I will stay in his place, lays down his life for Benjamin's preservation. And here are these many years later, what do we see? Judah and Benjamin at war, Judah prevailing over Benjamin. So what are we supposed to take from this strange collection of stories that's going to continue on in its strangeness next week, to be frank. One of the things that I think is so compelling about this particular portion of the text is the evidence of David's genuine grief. Here's the biggest reason that I don't think that his lament is a political move, that I don't think that it is a put-on. Because I think that he understood the will of the Lord. He wanted to do the will of the Lord, even if it was not the easiest or most expedient route. He was committed to do the will of God. Not only that, but he was willing to enter into full grief over the wastefulness caused by sin. Who does that sound like? Another who would be spoken of by the prophets as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. David will present for us this semester views of unrighteousness and views of righteousness, but I think that in this lament what we see is a foretaste of Jesus Christ himself, who even though we are deserving oftentimes of the harm that comes our way, because we brought it upon ourselves through our own folly or our own rebellion, he still grieves. He's still willing to enter into the sorrow. And he is indeed the source of any of our future joy. And then I think the other thing we can take from this is to ask some questions about the attributes of God. What should you have written on that last question? Well, I always hate that because it's none of my business what you wrote, and you should write exactly what you pulled from the text. But here are three that jumped out at me. The first one seems fairly obvious. What did we see this week about God? Well, we see the wrath of God. He's wrathful. He hates all unrighteousness. And so we see his wrath playing out in the way that people's lives are just being torn apart by sin. What do you, when you hear these stories of battles and fighting, what do you think? You think, just get David on the throne. Can we just get to the part where David is ruling and order is restored? And we should feel that because that is the story of Christ coming to die and then to rule and to reign. So that the wrath of God might be meted out on him instead of us. What's another thing we can pull from this week? I think the faithfulness of God. Because even though it's a mustard seed start, David is a king ruling. Just as God said that he would. God is being faithful to his word. Incrementally so, but certainly so. And lastly, this is one of my favorites, I think, because I need it from him so much. God is patient. But I actually like the term long-suffering better than patient. He bears with us for the long term. Our definition in the back of your workbook says God is untiring and bears with his children. That's what we see him doing here. He is patiently working out what is best for his people, even though on any given day it might be hard to see. We have 55 chapters to paint the picture for us. We can take our time knowing that the Lord is good and faithful and long-suffering. Maybe you're in the middle of kind of a mess right now personally, and you're wondering, is the Lord faithful? Maybe you're aware more than ever of a sin pattern or a foolish behavior that has required the Lord's patience of you once again. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to ask, will I raise my hand against the Lord's anointed or will I walk in the fear of the Lord so that sin might die and righteousness might flourish? that the Spirit might do a work in me, that I, like David, can be jealous for the will of the Lord to be done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for hard stories. Um, Thank you for the wisdom of teachers who write commentaries that help us sort through some of the harder parts of this. Father, we pray that you would continue to give us increasing skill to read these words and ask the right questions about what is going on and who is motivated by what, not so that we can simply point a finger at the person in the text and say his motive is selfish or his is righteous, but that we might turn that finger on ourselves and ask, what are my motives when I think that there is favor to be won? What are my motives when I feel threatened? What are my motives when I'm afraid? Lord, help us to surrender our motives to you, trusting that you are not just worthy of our fear, our right reverence, but that you are also worthy of our trust and the greatest affection that we can have. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, King Jesus. Amen.